So when people come to running and they've come from a sport background and they've come from this traditional way of which they've learned how, how to hit a ball or how to throw a ball or how to kick a ball, right? That was a very didactic, systematic process, which you can't do with distance running, you know? Um, I, rem I remember talking to high-end sprint coaches and a lot of them, and I'm talking about sprint coaches who produce Olympic-level performances with, with their sprinters or their hurdlers, and them saying to me, we don't understand distance running. It doesn't, we can't teach the mechanics of distance running the same way as we teach sprinting, right? Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee. Running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Pandola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Hey, Matt. Uh, good to uh, see you again. Uh, I know we're going to be meeting up again in next month again. I always look forward to that when we, when we get together and we, we can work hands-on. That's always a, an exciting, creative time for us. Um, I think we discussed that maybe what we're going to do in this this uh, session, this podcast, is just, just talk about what is good run form, right? And and you know what what do you want it to look like, and uh, you know what uh, what does it constitute? And I think this would be a good way to start and lead off into looking at a global of what good run form is, how you can work on it. But then also, as as the as the weeks go by, address specific components. Maybe start at the bottom, work with the big toe, and then the arch, and then the ankle, and work our way up the chain. And because you know our our happy place is is triathletes, right? We'll work all the way up to to you know the cervical spine and the head. You know, work work through those so that people just start getting a sense of if I see a piece of video of myself running, how can I be objectively critical as opposed to just saying my goodness i look awful right <laughs> what, what what is good running and how does it relate to does your form change with pace does your form change with terrain uh does your form change when you're running off the bike and and you know go go through those various phases yeah one thing i want to point out for people listening is if you are not a triathlete but you are a desk jockey which is most of us in other words you are kind of stuck in these positions a lot of times where you do have the forward head and you are doing a lot of postural work where you're trying to get a little bit more movement again after you've been sitting for several hours, then these pointers we're giving if you are a pure runner and not a triathlete are still for you. So listen up. That's perfect. That's perfect. Maybe maybe a good place to start w would be to just look at some sort of a uh, uh, you know a content so that people can be ready to uh, ex get what we expect to work on as the weeks go by. Right. So we'll look at some definitions, uh, and then today I think the emphasis should be on the global, so that people understand how how the whole body fits together. Right. So before going into those individual places, because as you said before, before we got on on the show, that uh, sometimes when people have an aha moment about a small thing that is extremely important, they make the that one thing be the whole thing for a while until <laughs> until that fails, right? And then they go, okay, on to the next thing. So it's important that people understand that, especially with running, 
that it's a very holistic conversation. Everything impacts everything. And having an understanding of the global to start with is, is a good place to go. Yeah. And I was just teaching a class over the weekend with some experts, some physios, uh, some other strength coaches, and of course, some running coaches. And what was really interesting there is that I had that aha, that first aha movement with everyone when I talked about running being the first language. And that, of course, is a conversation that you usually start off with with groups. I thought that'd be nice to just review that. What What is this aha moment for those of us listening, wanting to know, why do I need to work on my run form? And, and what do you mean by run form being my first language? Yeah, okay. that That's a great question, right? Because firstly, at the start, people, you know, you go into a running store and people ask you, what kind of a gait do you have, right? And that's a really hard conversation to, to answer, right? So, you know, with the introduction of, of power meters, like with stride, um, I've, you know, we found a way in which we can interpret what we're seeing objectively. All right. And uh, so when working with, uh, with distance running, right, which is a primal movement. All right. It's almost more primal than walking. It's definitely way, way, way more deeply organically ingrained in us than than like race walking or definitely swimming and definitely cycling right it's something that we originally started to do to either catch food or to get away from danger right so it was really it's that primal and so you know the normal conversation is is when did you learn to swim who was your first swim coach do you remember which town it was where was the pool was it a pond was it the ocean you know who was involved there? And, and you have a very strong, most people have a very strong recollection of what that is. And similarly with the bike, what was your first bike? Did it have tassels? Did it have a basket? Was it a, you know, a banana bike? Was it, you know, did it have one of these low rider saddles? You know, just remembering what your first bike was and then which parent or which sibling taught you to ride that bike. You have a very clear recollection, right? So already you were using this approach where you start off with okay you need to balance you need velocity you need this that, and the other but nobody remembers thinking about their unformed the first time you raced a friend or the first time uh you have this recollection of okay running is a formal activity by which we can compete you know we like who's faster right that's a playground thing but the actual mechanics of how we run we're a function of our anthropometry, right? And we're a function of our environment and we're a function of the the temperature around, right? So do, did we wear shoes from the beginning because it was cold in the winter or didn't we, right? So um, when, you, when you speak to people and they do look at that individual place that we spoke about, like I want to look at my feet, right? My ankle hurts. Well, am I doing something wrong with my foot placement? Should I be midfoot striking because I'm a heel striker right now, right? And then they go and they change that as, as a unit and, and realizing that when you learn to run, it was like your first language. It was organic. It was a response to the environment and your, and your anthropometric way of being built. Do you have a long torso? Do you have a short torso? Do you have a big wingspan? Do you have short arms? Do you have long legs? What's your inseam relative to your torso? All of those things impacted how you ran, right? And so when you learned to run, it was like by assimilation, by like your first language. You just heard your mom speaking, your dad speaking, you mimic that, that's how you learned, right? And I often felt that coming from Africa myself, 
and watching people run my whole life, I had a different take on what running was to say uh, a Western kid, right, who was watching basketball or was watching baseball or was watching football or or was watching soccer, right? Very high speed running, very intermittent, not a lot of concentration on economy, right? So our understanding, if we mimicked somebody and how they ran, would be a very long, powerful Adonis-like stride, right? So like like a mythical Greek runner would be running with a shield and a spear, that kind of thing, right? Whereas my thing was somebody who could run for hours and hours and hours, low to the ground, shuffling, little dust clouds coming up as their feet hit the ground, incredibly softly in, in an incredibly springy fashion. So when people come to running and they've come from a sport background and they've come from this traditional way of which they've learned how, how to hit a ball or how to throw a ball or how to kick a ball, right? That was a very didactic, systematic process, which you can't do with distance running, you know? Um, I, rem I remember talking to high-end sprint coaches on a lot of them, and I'm talking about sprint coaches who produce Olympic-level performances with, with their sprinters or their hurdlers, and them saying to me, we don't understand distance running. It doesn't, we can't teach the mechanics of distance running the same way as we teach sprinting, right? So while sprinters are born, right, and uh, they have to be maximized and optimized. And if you start looking at the video of sprinters, you can see how much they can learn to become better sprinters. But distance running is kind of like right in the middle, right? Your shoulder set is not extreme. Your arm action is not extreme and not maximized. Uh, and, and all of those things, having, having a visual of seeing the gray is what lies at the heart of this, right? So understanding that when you work with somebody's distance running form, it's simple and complex in as much as you have to get to the changes from a perspective of putting stuff in the way to create responses that were natural in the first place. So it's more a restoration activity, you know, than it is creating a skill activity. Yeah. And I think you brought up swimming. I love that example because with swimming, you can feel the water. You you have the resistance, water being about a thousand times denser than air. So there are components there that allow you to kind of work on that skill set a little bit more and almost trusting what you feel a little bit more. Whereas with running, it's different. You don't have that same resistance. You have air molecules that'll have a little bit more resistance when you are at elevation versus uh, higher up or at sea level rather versus elevation, but it's it's not enough for you to really feel a lot of those components. And I think that's kind of good area to talk about is why you can't trust what you feel so much when it comes to your run form and and how in fact we work from there to be able to get more visceral in that in in that uh progression yeah a, a story that i often use to ex explain those uh, uh laws of biomechanics right is uh, uh working with with andy potts right who was a very very high level swimmer very very fast 500 meter swimmer in college and then he became a triathlete right and he's one of those rare individuals where his 500 yard time was very similar to his mile time, right? So, you know, in, in that, that 4, 420 range. And um, 
Andy had a habit in the pool when I was working with him and his his coach, um, Mike Down, that he would cross over slightly with one of his arms. And when when we showed Andy this video, right, he was instantly aware of what he was doing. And he said, I got it. All right. And he went into the pool and nothing changed. But to him, there was a dramatic change. So it might have been a two or a three millimeter change. But he was so grooved in his swim stroke that just moving his arm even minimally to the to the outside was extremely uncomfortable for him, right? And and yet when we looked at the video, there was negligible change or even unnoticeable change to the to the eye unless you were doing specific video measurements, right? And so what it required was this exaggeration. Feel like you weigh out here and it will be changed very slightly, right? And so there's that period of time. So what comes up with swimming, that that first rule of mechanics, exaggerate, right? And the second rule that you just referred to, that rule of, of um, being aware that how you are feeling that you are moving your body is very different to how you're moving your body because of the habitua habituation, because of the myelinization. You're so comfortable in a movement and, and running and swimming and cycling are, are wonderful and awful for the same reason, right? You repeat the exact same motion thousands of times within the course of one training session, right? So you can so quickly habituate a wrong move. And if you stay focused, you can so quickly habituate a correct move. The difference being that in running, uh, compared to cycling and swimming, making those changes peripherally, and you and I will speak about this peripheral central concept very shortly, but in other words, just changing the shoulder or just changing the wrist or just changing the knee very quickly leads to injury, right? So it's much more a cascade effect. And as you very rightly said, in swimming, you have, if something hurts, right, you're probably moving incorrectly and making adjustments will take that away because of the density of the environment. And because of the speed on the bike, air density becomes so much more relevant than when you're running. So, so you just lift your head up slightly on the bike and not on, you don't even need a wind tunnel to know that you've become in, aerodynamically inefficient. So that exponential use of power to overcome air resistance is much more apparent uh, on, on the bike. So that environment, you know, the feedback from running is, is you just crumple and fall apart and arch and extend and do all sorts of silly things because you're fatigued and you don't realize it's impacting your velocity, right? And then the last thing I'll just mention before we move on is this, this fact that people who come from a swimming background have hab habituated a very non-human movement pattern, right? They move ipsilaterally. And by ipsilaterally, I mean they move their right arm in the same pattern as they move their right leg, as opposed to the opposite, right? So contralateral movement is what running and cycling is, where what your right side does at the top in your upper body, your left side does in the lower body on the opposite side, right? So that opposite versus same side. So often when swimmers come to the sport of running, they can move ipsilaterally. And in nature, there's very few animals that that run ipsilaterally, right? One of them being primates. And primates are not great distance runners, right? 
because they move their left leg and their left arm at the same time, and they, they're not very efficient runners. They're fast, but not efficient. Right, yeah, and we've talked a lot about how we can get a little bit more understanding about why it is that we can't necessarily feel our run form. Those of you that have ever seen yourself at the end of a race, I think that's always a good example. If that photographer's taking that picture and you think that that's not me, like that's, there's no way that was me. And, and, and that's the wake up call, right? Because I think we've all seen that photo in the race where we're, we're wondering how the heck our form turned into that. And we didn't necessarily even feel that we were out of form uh, so much as we can now see it, right? So I think go back and look at your photos, but also knowing that you are in control here, ready to roll, there are some things we can do to work on changing that and progressing that so that we have more of an understanding here. I want to give an example of a wheel. So we have the bicycle wheel with the hub and the center, and we have spokes coming out from that wheel. And when you talk about the right wrist and the left ankle, I think about those spokes need to be true. And if those spokes aren't true, the wheel starts to wobble. And that does all come from the center. And that's that's what we kind of mean when we say we we need to really pay attention to what's happening centrally. And that all starts with things like our breathing and our bracing and our ability to hold our posture and then let that posture flow out of us. But I just wanted to point out or give a bit of a visual on that. That that really seemed to help in in um in understanding when I gave that visual. So I I I hope that helps people listening today why we need to really pay attention to how those spokes are true. In other words, how our limbs are actually working from our center, from that hub. Yeah, I, I, they, you, again, it's just fascinating, you know, when you speak, all these little key moments come up that speak to how we both look at, at how somebody's moving. So some anecdotes there too. I worked for many years with uh, 70.3 uh, world champion Joanna Zeiger, and, and Joanna's continual issue was was popping the top because she had very, very um, extended, hyperextended lumbar spine, right? So uh, we worked a lot on getting getting that chest down so that she could activate the glutes, use her glutes on the run off the bike, right? And uh, what we used to do is she used to go for a long run. So let's say she's doing a 90-minute run. I'd get some video in the first 10 minutes, and then I'd go off home, right, and go do something else. And then I'd meet her at a spot like 75 minutes into the run, and then I'd take some more video, right? And we compare that video when she was fresh to when she was tired. So a lot of our work is also about not having people come out to the field, warm up a little bit, and then run beautifully for five minutes, right? We're going to see how they deteriorate, build, build that, that muscle endurance up over time, uh, which, which becomes very important. There's a top swimming coach, and he was a brilliant swimmer himself. I do believe he might have even been a, a world record holder for, for the 100 meters by the name of John T. Skinner. He's uh, in the top collegiate program now. He's, he's worked with Olympic swimmers on, on many levels. But he taught me to understand that central peripheral concept, right? So you stand in front of a, of a triathlete and you have them extend their arm above their head sort of like they were entering the water, but they're standing. And then you provide resistance on their hand, right? And then you say to them, look, stop me from pushing you over 
and you push into them, if they are uh, peripherally holding on, they're holding on with the muscles of their shoulder, their elbow, their wrist, all right, which are the per are peripheral uh, muscle groups in terms of how the body moves, right? And they are very easy to push over or to collapse, right? But if you, if you guide them to hold on with the opposite hip and even the opposite quad, and they, they then push in there, that's a central control, right? Now they're controlling with the entire core and they're much more stable in the arm. And so that was a, a good way for me to explain that, right? So when people disconnect in running and the upper body starts swaying uh, from left to right, or they start rotating with their arms as a unit, both arms together, all right? So that's a peripheral movement. So the upper body's coming along for the ride. It's playing a bit of a balancing role, but it's not contributing to forward propulsion, especially not for reset of the leg. But as soon as those arms then start moving contralaterally again, that's now using the central system, the core, to move the arms, and that's now assisting the leg. So that, that to me, that whole explanation of central and peripheral really helps as a, as a teaching tool. Yeah, no, absolutely. And for, for my side of things, with um, transverse abdominis is the deepest and first action that you're going to utilize in core activation. So when we were originally looking at the research, and this is years ago, uh, we started really getting into transverse abdominis movements, almost like trying to isolate that response. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really work that way. We we were told it was it was working that way, and eventually we learned that really it's meant to work in this beautiful symphony where we have that arm overhead and you provide some resistance. Now that transverse abdominus wants to kick right in so that you don't spill the spine, and that's its, its main job. So getting you into a position where you're going to activate that system, if you will, is where you can start to really learn that is what is bracing or allowing me to hold my posture and utilize that support system. Again, the hub and the spokes going out, we're now getting that hub. So it's doing its job. Now everything coming from there can do its job. Fantastic. So there, there you go, right there. You, you've got into your world. I can see you visualizing what you are talking about. And you just throw out a statement like, spill the spine. I'm going, oh my goodness, that's magic right there, right? So talk to me about spill the spine. What, what, what are you seeing? What, what, how do you, I mean, to me, it's, an, it's a magical image in, in terms of a, a, a coaching tool. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about the spine, we want to have our spine so that we are not, it's it's obviously got its curves, right? So we, we, our spine is not technically just one line, right? And it is meant to move laterally, like side to side. It's meant to move forward. It's meant to move backwards. It's meant to move in rotation. So all of those actions are part of how our spine moves. But when we need to be in control of that. In other words, we we need to be in positions where we are allowing that to happen under our control, under stability. When we spill the spine, when I refer to that, that means that we're, we're not in control of that. We have lost control and now the spine is vulnerable. And 
since everything is coming from that support system. In other words, all of the muscles, its job around the spine is to support the spine. But when we lose control of that, that means now we start to lose our response. So in other words, having that late gait where our foot is now falling too far in front of us, that is a good example of how, because we're not in control of our posture, because we're not in control of our spine, we're spilling our spine, now that foot is just falling down. Gravity is taking over instead of us beating gravity down to the ground because we're in control, ready to roll. That's another uh, you know, quote I like to use a lot. When I say in control, ready to roll, that means that we are holding our posture and now we are the ones that are allowing that power that we have within us to come out without leaking power, right? So that's what I kind of mean about uh, spine spilling. And to give um, an example of this, one of the first tests that I usually give is just a bridge, just a good old fashioned bridge, just holding a plank position. And that's gotten vilified by a lot of people because all oh, planks are boring and don't do planks because they're they're not really doing much for you. Yet almost every person that I evaluate initially, I get them into a plank position and they are falling into one side. So when I say a plank position, you have you're facing the ground, you might have your forearms down on the ground and your feet on the ground, nothing else is touching the ground and say, okay, yeah, I'm holding a plank position. But when I take a video of that person, this goes along with don't trust how you feel at first, but take a video of it. And I take a video and go around that person at 360. You can see, let's say that their more dominant side is going to be their right side and they're less confident or they're more challenged on, on their left side. They will slightly fall into that right side, holding that plank position. Now you have maybe, let's say, 60% of the work being done on the right side and 40% on the left. Yet that person will say, I can hold a plank for five minutes. Well, you're holding a plank with compensation, but you're spilling your spine. And that's an example of how we need to start to start with the basics using good breathing patterns and learning to get that spine so that it is supported with both sides working equally. Wow, there's so much in what you've just said, right? So right there's the the ego conversation, like I can hold a plank for five minutes, right? I can I can bench X amount of pounds so, so many times, right? And all of that defeating the purpose of what we're trying to achieve with a run, right? So uh, one of the things that, that fits right in with don't spill your spine is as I talk about running into your window, right? So you can so quickly see when you're watching a runner that they're not running into their window. Um, there's there's things falling out the sides. There's things collapsing, you know, head up, all those kind of things. So you you can immediately see when somebody's running into their window, right? Um, and then add to that that the very first exercise in our run form program in the banded dynamics is find your stack, right? right? So I love that idea of standing behind a runner and say, take your running posture, right? Even here is a still of you at mid stance. If I push down on your shoulders while you were in mid stance, what would hurt? Oh, my low back would hurt or something like that. Or just having a runner take a stance, push down on their shoulders, and they cannot stop their pelvis from popping out the front, right? Or from them rolling their spine thoracically. 
They can immediately feel that they are not stacked. And that whole idea of I've loaded the spring, but if I'm not stacked, that spring is unloading in the wrong directions. It's not driving me forward. I'm not under control of my leg spring stiffness. I'm not bringing all of my leg spring stiffness to bear. And then the whole cornucopia of things that you can choose from, whether that be range of motion or whether that be a skill or that be a strength or a power movement um, that you would have to draw from and to work on over time so that that would automatically become the movement. It just it's just fantastic. I mean, I love that concept that, you know, I understand things for the first time sometimes when you speak, right? So looking at plank dominance, like looking which hip is being held up, looking at which shoulder is being held up, looking at what's happening to the lumbar spine during a plank, right? So I've got to the point now where I say to people, if you're holding a plank for longer than six seconds, you're not doing it properly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that kind of conversation, like, what? I can hold the plank for five minutes. What do you mean six seconds? Just saying, well, you're just not doing it properly because if you're holding it for 15, 20 seconds, you, you're leaking somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, people may be really confused by that. And what I refer to there is when you're talking about holding a plank, one of the ways that we can actually improve our position is by holding what we kind of refer to as max uh, tension or focused intentional tension and torque and technique. And so what I'll say is, man, I want you to pull your elbows towards your toes and your toes towards your elbow with as much force as you can. You're shortening that line and you're creating so much tension. You're just shaking, shaking, shaking. And what does happen is that people have a really hard time at first understanding that if they're advanced, then they're actually going to max out sooner. And it's a great conversation to have. Um, one big aha moment that I had in this uh, lecture I gave the other day, I was working with a, a physio in particular. I'm thinking of him. He's he's worked with so many athletes and he's he's really sharp guy. And I just had him doing a quad tug. And again, this is on a single leg and he just kind of thinking of it as obviously stretching your quad, right? But when he grabbed his his leg, we saw him spilling his spine. In other words, he's on a single leg, and now he's trying to grab his, his leg to get into that quad tug position, and he completely spilled over to do it, right? And we had that conversation about why it is so important that we actually get ourselves stacked and set in that position, then go into the quad tug, with hips steering and in control because that is going to support in, uh, the spine and that's where the spine wants to be. And once we understand that, then we can start to see how a lot of these movements do cross over beautifully into our gait. But uh, even, even a physio like Kevin, who I'm referring to, never really thought about that when it came to run form, right? So that's where I get really excited because these things are very cognitive at first, but working on it every day and making sure you're getting those devil in the details down, that is what really allows it to become more visceral. And I I tell everyone this when I taught these DMDs, dynamic mobility drills that we have in our program in this class, I had very committed coaches and physios. I told them, okay, I want you to do this every day. We're going to meet again in three weeks. And I just want to uh, have a clear understanding that 
you may feel like you're actually working pretty hard at these things and even running slower when you are trying to initially learn these things. But after a few weeks, now it starts to feel much more automatic. I know that these candidates are, are good people to be able to do something like this with because they will do it every day. And I'm teaching that to them because I know that they will preach that to their athletes need to do this every day. Right, Bobby? So I think I get really excited too when we start to have these conversations because it's not as tough in my mind as it needs to be in the sense that it feels overwhelming when we hear all these details and we think we have to be able to master all of these things today. No, we just need to understand the details and the basics enough so that we are getting better at it a little bit more every day. And that's the point to me, Bobby. Yeah, no, incredible, Matt. And I and I know, you know, we've been at it for a while already uh, in, in this session, but I would be loath if we didn't get on to that realization that doing strength work, doing plyometric work is not only about muscle tissue. It's very much about fascia. It's very much about ligaments and tendons. And people understand how that works, right? So uh, that these complex movements that you get better at so very, very quickly are not because that muscle is being conditioned only, but because that fascia and those tendons and those ligaments are also very quickly responding in a neurologic fashion as, as well as in a, in a conditioning thing. So, you know, to get to something like the kinetic chain in terms of understanding distance running is, is how quickly you and I will look up the chain, right? So somebody is, you know, overpronating or something like that, or is externally rotating. And so we'll look straight away at, okay, is that a external rotator thing? Is that a weakness? Is that a muscle weakness, either in the groin or on the hip or something like that? But also quickly looking at when they pronating, what are they doing with the opposite wrist, right? So they're rotating with the left foot. What's the opposite wrist doing? It was so crazy that, you know, the, the Olympic champion that I worked with in 96, Josiah Tungwani, he was way, pronated way more on one foot than the other. But it was so interesting that his opposite wrist would do this with every step that he took. He would rotate that wrist inwards, right? So that was either balancing out the pronation or playing some role in the pronation. But very, very interesting to, to look at that in running, pay attention to your left wrist as it pertains to your right ankle and your left elbow as it pertains to your right knee and your left shoulder as it pertains to your, to your right hip, right? So those things work in conjunction. I see a lot of sprint coaches working with that. They very quickly pick up when somebody comes out of the blocks, if their shoulders stay square, that's a big problem, right? Um, that, that their shoulders should oscillate um, contralaterally, right? So as that left knee comes up, that right shoulder needs to go forward, all right? It's not good enough for the right elbow or the right arm to go forward. The shoulder needs to go forward because that brings it from the peripheral to the central. So, you know, as, as time goes by, you know, we're going to talk about every time we talk about the big toe, you know, we'll talk about something like how the big toe impacts not only the stiffening of the foot with the windlass effect, which is so critical for us, but how it fits into the spiral line and how the big toe actually impacts the opposite shoulder and how that moves or vice versa. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th I think, again, you know, with people who are listening to this and trying to apply it, I would go back to 
with that quad tug movement, when we talk about DMDs being even potentially just a good diagnostic, when we master movements and I can see that an athlete is now getting into this quad tuck with good steering, with good control, then I feel like, yeah, they are ready to roll. We are not necessarily seeing that we've completely changed somebody's form. And I think that that's maybe something we can end with in this conversation is that I'm more looking at, are we seeing things improve for their mechanics? Because with my history, especially with um, my back injury that I had, I'm, it was traumatic enough that I'm never going to move completely the way I did when I was uh, a youth. And that's okay. I'm now able to improve my positions enough that I'm getting more out of my run form. And so I like to kind of just end with that thought process because there is this maybe sort of stigma around how you shouldn't mess with somebody's run form. And if you look at somebody like uh, Emil Zodopek, I think I'm saying it right, um, he was an Olympian who won the 5,000, 10,000 in his first ever marathon he ran all at the Olympics, won gold. And if you look at just a duck in the water from the hips down, it was like a beautiful symphony. But up top, there was all of this <laughs> disorganization going on. And the way I look at it is uh, a meal was amazing, but looking at how we can improve things, even for somebody of that caliber, we can even allow us to have more performance, but more importantly to me, more longevity, being able to do this for a lifetime because we are working with more of our best mechanics, our best mechanics, not not somebody else's. Yeah, I think that's a great thing because a lot of people would say, "Oh, my, you know, my knees require surgery. I just, I just can't improve on that." Uh, you know, whereas there might be a whole lot that can be done before we go to the dramatic steps of surgery. So, an interesting thing to look at with Zadapek is the fact that. He, his engine size relative to the top runners today is probably a smaller differential between the two engine sizes. If you look at his time, which was, I think, high 28s or even low 29s for 10,000 meters, compared to the, you know, the, the 26, 30s that, that, that the athletes are running today. And if you look at the differential in engine size, and you also look at the differential in footwear and track surfaces and stuff like that, I think the thing that you notice immediately, and it would be difficult to quantify, but his mechanics versus the mechanics of somebody today, you say, okay, how much faster could Zatopek have run if his mechanics were optimized? You know, was, it, he, he could have become even more legendary than he was, right? So it's, it's just a consideration when people are looking at, okay, how's my run form going to impact my performance? And, and it's huge. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very. No, I'm sorry. I'm interrupting a little bit, but I uh, just thought of something is that that's where a lot of times I feel like the conversation stems around people looking at the greats and using that as an ideal or a comparison. And I think that's that's a mistake, right? And that's where we can kind of fall off the purpose of what can serve us best. And relating ourselves to um, some of the best ever is, to me, a recipe for disaster. We we, we want to be able to compare ourselves to our ourselves and how we can use tools to get better for our own mechanics. But, 
you know, I'm I'm certainly uh, no Zotapec, but I uh, can look forward to running the rest of my life and just feeling fast and free without worry. Yeah, exactly. So so trying to get a Gwen Jorgensen to match the cadence capabilities and the 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 strength of a of a Ben Canute, or trying to get a Ben Canute to match the stride angle capacity of a Gwen Jorgensen, both of them would become injured and neither of them would be champion. Yeah, perfect. Well, I hope that uh, helps people out. And just as a reminder, you can always start with movement improvement, which is something that you can get for free on our site. And no matter what you want to do, at least starting with something like that, that can address the ankles, the the uh, the the hips, the thoracic mobility, all these things that we we're talking about with those spokes from the hub. Those are great things to start with. Then hopefully you will try out our run form program, getting those DMDs down and really learning all of the specifics in our program. That's what it's all about. And that's why we believe in starting with the basics and mastering those basics and moving from there. So I, I really appreciate everybody who does give us the feedback on what they've been able to control. Now they're ready to roll. And we just want more people to understand that you do have the control to take these steps for yourselves. These, these are not overwhelming movements. These are pretty simple movements that have a very complex result. That's kind of the way I think of it sometimes, Bobby. Yep, yep, absolutely. And remember, folks, always out there with grace, gratitude, and guts. We'll speak to you guys soon. As always, thanks for listening to the RunForm podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pandola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run.